this is a faithful saying, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am chief. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15. I'm Jason Garcia, and this is Faithful Sayings. Well, good morning, and thanks again for tuning in. I'm going to be beginning in Matthew chapter 26 this morning. If you want to take out your Bible and be turning to Matthew chapter 26 with me, we're going to be thinking about the spirit of the disciples here and the historical context of the instituting the Lord's Supper. They have a question that they all ask. That the Bible says that each one of them asked Jesus. And I want us to think about that question and think about is it appropriate for us to ask this this question? So, uh, what is it? We we go to Matthew twenty six, and we drop down to verse twenty to get the context here. It says, "When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples." So we remember he sends them ahead to the city to prepare this upper room to eat the Passover, and he'll say, "I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you." And of course, this is where he institutes the Lord's Supper. But he also reveals this in verse 21. He says, As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. And being deeply grieved, that each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. Depending on your translation, that question may read, Is it I, Lord? In other words, the disciples were asking each of them, is it, is it going to be me? Am I, am I going to be the one who's going to do this and betray you? And I think that should all give us, give us pause. You know, these men had been with him for three years. All of these men had been with him for the better part of that, Luke 23 tells us. And he called each of them personally to discipleship. If you look at Mark chapter 3, there's some interesting language there, you know, we, we remember that Jesus uh, prays all night long before he chooses 12 men among his disciples who he would also call apostles who would be his special ambassadors and reveal the truth and would be able to work miracles and things like this. And it says that he went up on the mountain in Mark chapter 3 and verse 13. This is as he's choosing these disciples. It says that he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted and they came to him, whom he himself wanted, and they all came to him. And these men proved that they were up to the task and that they wanted to be servants in the kingdom of Christ, and they wanted to fulfill the special role as apostles that he was preparing them for. And, you know, before he sends them out and the Great Commission that we read about, we sometimes read about uh, the Lesser Commission. Uh, in Luke chapter 9, in the ministry of, of the twelve, and when he sends out, um, sends them out on a number of different occasions. And, and in here in Luke chapter 9, he, he sends them out, and they, they teach about him, and they teach the kingdom, and they teach repentance, and that the kingdom is at hand. And it says that in verse 10 that when they returned, when the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done, taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. Uh, so all of the apostles here would include all 12 of them originally. With Judas, of course, we know that Judas is who Jesus is ultimately referring to in Matthew 26 and verse 
22. But the point that I want to emphasize is that they, they all, all the disciples understood that they had the capacity to betray him. How could that be? How could that be that when they were such diligent workers and they were coming to him throughout his ministry and reporting to them all that he had done, including Judas, who was working miracles and casting out demons and teaching in the name of Jesus? How could one of these men be so callous as to betray him even with a kiss as Judas will do later in that chapter in verse 49 in the Garden of Gethsemane? That's how he identified Jesus to those authorities who were with him, both civil, the Roman, and, and the Jewish police, temple police, who were with them coming to arrest Jesus. And even though it was Judas who would betray him in this way, we, re, we should remember, too, that all of the other disciples would desert him. They would run away in the garden. When they saw that they were that Jesus wasn't going to resist after Peter picks up the sword and slices off the ear of the priest's servant, and Jesus tells him to put it down, and that's how it's not going to be. And they see that he's going to be arrested and allow himself to be taken away. They, they run. And Peter follows for some time. But even he, we read in Luke chapter 22, and we know well would ultimately deny him three times, that he, that he even knew Jesus, that he even knew who he was in Luke chapter 22. In verse 60, here we read the, the last time that Peter uh, denies. He's already not denied knowing Jesus twice, and here is the last time. Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he told him, Before rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out. And wept bitterly. So this is a sad night for all the disciples. All of them are falling uh, into sin. They weren't ready for what was coming, as Jesus told them that they needed to be, even in the Garden of Gethsemane while he was praying and deeply grieved. He said, you need to watch and you need to pray so that you do not fall into temptation. And Peter here being tempted out of his fear to deny even knowing Christ succumbs to that and lies and says he doesn't know Jesus. And so each of these disciples understood that a treacherous spirit could be found in any one of them, and that any one of them could sink into condemnation, as Peter does here. Why, did, why else would he go out and weep bitterly? He was in one of the darkest moments of his life. He was within earshot of Jesus, and Jesus turns and looks at him after he says, I don't know him. After being with him almost every day for three years, is that not a betrayal? No. If your husband or your wife or uh, one of your children said, I, I don't know who that is, would you not feel betrayed and ashamed? And so, again, each each of these disciples are, are struggling, and, and I, we know that it's Judas who ultimately betrayed him and, and didn't repent. That's the key thing to remember about Judas is that he had opportunity to repent uh, there is no sin so great that God cannot forgive it and that His grace cannot cover it. Uh, but Judas chose not to avail himself of that of that grace, whereas Peter eventually does, as do the other disciples. They come back and they gather again, and they're sorry, and they want to resume the mission that was originally given to them. And so 
what I think we need to take from that, that this, this sad prospect and these examples should give every single Christian pause. Because Jesus has said that there will be those who have no firm root in themselves, that there will be those who allow the evil one to snatch away what has been sown in the heart. And again, that he says that there's that the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth can choke out the word in their heart which they have received. All those examples can be found in Matthew chapter 13, verses 18 through 23. There in the parable of the, the sower that Jesus tells there. So we have all these warnings, and given these warnings, do we ever stop to ask ourselves, is it me? Is it is it I, Lord? Just as the disciples did in Matthew chapter 26. He says, one of you is going to do this. One of you is going to make a mistake. One of you is going to betray me. They all had this conscientious spirit and were willing to, to say, am I going to be the one? And if we are to be found faithful in the end, we must continually examine ourselves. We must continually have that spirit willing to test our hearts and see if we are truly trusting in God and serving Him and accept the truth that any of God's people, any of God's people, may turn and join His enemies. And this was true from the very beginning. It was true of Judas. It was true of in John chapter 6 when many of His disciples turned away from Jesus, were not walking with Him anymore, John says. And look at what Paul has to say to the church at Ephesus. Well, to the elders, I should say, of, of Ephesus as he's departing in Acts chapter 20. So he's been in Ephesus some time. He's been teaching them. Uh, elders have been established in that church or leaders or shepherds. And now he is going to uh, depart. He's going to go to a different city and he's departing from Miletus. And while he's in Miletus, he calls the, the elders of Ephesus to him in verse 17 so that he can say goodbye. And it's a, it's a very emotional scene, and, and Paul is weeping. But he says to them, if you drop down uh, to verse 29, verses 29 and, and 30. Well, let's begin reading in verse 28. He says, Be on guard for yourselves. Now he's speaking to the elders here of the church at Ephesus, and he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit made you overseers or elders uh, or pastors to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now look at verses 29 and 30. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So Paul again is saying this is going to happen. And he's saying in verse 28, you need to be on guard. You need to be sentinels. You need to be aware of this. You need to take heed to yourself and do the job that you've been given to do because much is at stake. And there's going to be people that you're going to have to protect the flock against. And those people that you're going those wolves, verse 29, that you're going to have to protect the flock from are going to come up even from among your own selves, probably meaning within the eldership, but also among members of the church. And he's saying you need to be on guard. And you need to take heed to yourself to make sure that this doesn't happen to you. It's very similar to what he will say to the whole church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10. 
if you want to turn there with me in 1 Corinthians 10, he gives a, he be, this is a discussion that actually begins in 1 Corinthians 9 as he's uh, recounting the example of ancient Israel, uh, how even those who witnessed the and, and were part of the Exodus event and were delivered through the Red Sea, uh, he says, still with most of them, God was not pleased. And he's holding them up as an example all throughout chapter 10. He's saying, don't act immorally in verse 8. Don't try or test the Lord, verse 9. Don't grumble and complain, verse 10. And then he says in verse 11, these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed so that he does not fall. Is there anyone among us who is bulletproof, who just is totally invulnerable to sin? Paul will say of these people, they were baptized into Moses at the beginning of chapter 10 and verse 2. They ate the same spiritual food. They drank the same spiritual drink, and they were drinking from the rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. And then verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. And we know why that is. I mean, we can look to other passages. We can look to that historical example itself. We go back to Exodus and books of Numbers that recount those events where the people complained and grumbled and tested the Lord and didn't have faith in Him. And that's the reason, ultimately, the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter 3, that they were not allowed to enter the promised land because of their disbelief, uh, which he equates with their disobedience. So we think we may be doing really well. And maybe and maybe we are, but we can never allow ourselves to think. Maybe we're growing, maybe we're being sincere, uh, maybe we, we, we are being faithful, but we can never allow ourselves to think that we have somehow risen above or that we have arrived at a point where we are no longer vulnerable to weakness, or that we are somehow bulletproof. Because if we ever have that mentality, then we've already lost. If we ever cease to ask, is it, is it I, Lord? What is my weakness? Where could I stumble? Oh, then the enemy is going to take advantage of that. So how can we be sure we have the right attitude? What can we do? How can we be sure that we are examining our own hearts as we should? Well, first, I think we need to recognize the deliberate, conscious effort that each of us has to take and make in, in order to remain in Christ. Our faith is not something that's simply going to take care of itself. That's what Paul is saying here. That's what Peter is saying in 2 Peter 3, and verse 18. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ until He returns. So this is something we have to be diligent to do. And God will help us in it, but we have to make the effort. It's not, we're not going to grow on our own. That responsibility is on us, and God will give the increase. So if we're not striving to nourish our faith, then we're going to shrink. We're going to be spiritually malnourished, and we're going to regress. The Holy Spirit says that we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. This is in Hebrews chapter 3. Rather, in chapter 2, if you want to be turning there with me. Hebrews chapter 2. We'll just read that text together. 
he says again in thinking about the example of uh, as he's about to lead into these of the ancient Israelites he's saying for this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it for if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation who's he talking to here he's not talking to unbelievers he's talking to Christians he's talking to believers he's saying how can we escape how are we going to escape if we fall away, if we if we drift away, is the language that he uses in verse one of chapter two of Hebrews. If we just drift away, I mean, sel- seldom do people just come crashing down overnight, right? Nobody wakes up in the morning and just decides, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna fall away from the faith. I'm gonna disobey Jesus today. It's a gradual change. It's it's subtle. That's how the enemy works. And he says, we again, we need to take heed to ourselves so that we do not drift away from it. In chapter 3, he'll say something similar again in verse 12. He'll say, take care, brethren, again. Notice who he's talking to, his brethren, his brothers and sisters in Christ. He's saying, take care that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, so long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Verse 12, I want to emphasize, make sure there is not in any one of you, that's you and me, an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. So if we realize and we understand that we are vulnerable to weakness and temptations that cause us to stumble into sin and that we can drift away if we aren't careful, that there can be, even in us, an evil, unbelieving heart that have come to Christ and obeyed Him initially, then we need to examine ourselves. And we need to do this personally. I mean, we need to be focusing our efforts inwardly. I think it's easy to spot other people's weaknesses and chide them in our own minds and think, well, I wish so-and-so was better in this regard or that they weren't like this. But I think it takes a real concentrated effort on our part to look within ourselves and confess our sin to God, confess our weaknesses to God, where we need improvement, and ask Him for His help. Romans chapter 14, in verse 12, Paul says this, that each one of us will give an account of himself to God, not for other people. I'm not going to answer for you. You're not going to answer for me. But I need to be willing to to examine myself because I'm going to answer for myself. As Paul says, give an account of himself to God. And so we need to make this very personal. We need to bring this home, and we need to be examining our own hearts, not asking the question, is it is it him or is it her or is it this person, but is, is it I, is it me, Lord? What do I need to do? What do I need to work on? Where can I improve? And we must be willing to examine ourselves, not only personally, but examine ourselves by the right standard. Because if we fail in this, if we don't use the right standard, then examining ourselves is going to be worthless. There's not going to be any point. We can't hold ourselves up to the standards of other people and expect that that's okay with God. The doctrines of men, as the scripture refers to them, Proverbs 12 and verse 14 says that there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. 
There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And so we can't go by the think-sos and opinions and philosophies of men. We have to go to the Word. We can't compare ourselves with other people. In 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 12, Paul says, The people who compare themselves with themselves are without understanding. And we can't even compare ourselves with our past behavior. We can't look back and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as I was back then, so I must be doing doing okay. That's not none of those are the standard. All of these fall short of the true standard that God has set before us. His word, his Bible. And it alone is what we will be held accountable to in the day of judgment. What does Jesus say in John chapter 12 and verse 48? The word that I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. Let's go there and read that. Jesus actually says more than that. That's the last part of the verse that he um, that I quoted there. But in John chapter 12 and verse 48, beginning in verse 47 for the context, Jesus says here, If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And he who rejects me, here's verse 48, He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. Now we know Jesus' point in verse 47 is that he won't ever judge and, and that we should never judge and that there won't ever be a judgment. That's not what he's saying. Second Corinthians 5 and verse 10, we know that we all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And he tells us right here explicitly what the standard of his judgment is going to be. The word that he is speaking and the word that was also delivered through his apostles. It was Christ who was speaking through his apostles, those men that he prepared for that role. And so all of the scripture, all of the New Testament, we need to hear, we need to obey, and we need to test ourselves. That is the standard then by which we must examine ourselves. And if we don't use it, if we're not holding ourselves up against it, then again, our, our self-examination and asking the question, is that I, Lord, is, is going to be meaningless. So we need to judge ourselves by the proper standard. We need to make sure that this judgment is very, or this examination is very personal, that it's inward, that we're that we have the magnifying glass on ourselves and not on other people. And the truth is, we're not going to like what we see a lot of times. We discover things about ourselves that God demands we relinquish and give up in order to serve Him. Maybe some attitude, uh, some thought process some behavior, some bad habit that we're in that is ultimately sinful. And when we look at the Bible and we open His Word and we see that He's condemning it and seeing that He's calling us to be better, then we have to, we have to lay those things down. And it's going to be an unpleasant experience a lot of times, just not how we're, how we're used to living. But however unpleasant it may be, it does not negate our responsibility to follow through. And this is a struggle for everybody, including myself. But we cannot afford to shy away from thoroughly examining ourselves, asking God's help to show us those darkest corners of our heart. What do we need to relinquish? David prayed this in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. This is what he says. He says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me 
and lead me in the everlasting way. What a tremendous attitude. Of course, those words were inspired by the Holy Spirit. But I think it's an attitude that we must share. It's a prayer that we must be willing to pray. David is calling upon God to expose him and ask. He's asking that he sees himself as that he see himself as God sees him. Know my heart. Try me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any wicked way, hurtful way in me. And then show me the right way to go. Lead me in the everlasting way. Now, if we're simply afraid to find out how God sees us, of course we're not going to ask. We're not going to pray this prayer. And so, we need to have this boldness. We need to have this take heed, as as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12. We need to be willing to take heed. And part of taking heed to ourselves is being willing to own up to our vulnerability, to our weakness, and, and ask for help in prayer. Ask for God to search us and try us and help us, lead us in the everlasting way. If we're going to improve, if we're going to root out weaknesses and old habits and sinful habits and unscriptural behavior, then we have to be willing to confront them when exposed. And finally, I want to share this point with you as we wrap up thinking about this this question and this attitude that we see in the disciples it, it, asking, is it I, Lord? Is it me who's going to betray you? You know, we need to be willing to examine ourselves honestly and continually. I think we see that in David. He was willing to be honest with himself. He wanted to be honest with himself. He's calling upon God to help him in that. But isn't this isn't something that we just do one time. We can't be afraid to be brutally honest with ourselves and we have to keep doing that. And we have to continue saying that prayer. John says this in 1 John chapter 1. Again, all of these letters are addressed to believers. I think that's important to, to remember. that The words we saw in Hebrews chapter 2 about drifting away from what we've heard in chapter 3 about having an evil, unbelieving heart and being careful not to do that. Acts chapter 20, as Paul is speaking to the elders, the leaders, right, in, in that church at Ephesus, that there would be wolves that arose from among them. Those The audience was always Christians. They, they were believers. And John here, it's the same with him in 1 John chapter 1, when he says in verse 8, if we, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10, If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. Now, the reason I bring this passage out in light of our point of examining ourselves continually, John is saying that we're just deceiving ourselves if we're if we say, that we don't have any sin, and we don't have any sin we need to confess, uh, that we are not in need of forgiveness, even after coming to Christ. Remember, John was an apostle. John is writing to uh, brethren. He's writing to churches. And he's saying, we need to own up to this. And of course, he isn't saying in verses 8, 9, and 10 that uh, a prayer is just like this magic button that you can just live however you want, and then you just 
say a prayer and you just confess your sins and then God just wipes it away. Um, this is predicated upon what he says previously in verses 5, 6, and 7. So let me just read those quickly for context. In verse 6 he says, If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is himself in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. So there it is in verse 7. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. How does the blood of Jesus cleanse us from all sin? Well, then he goes on to explain to Christians what that entails in verses 8, 9, and 10 that we read. That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins. But if we uh, say, oh no, I don't, I don't need that, well then we're being dishonest. So Paul's instruction to the church was in the present active tense as well. And in 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5, to examine ourselves and test ourselves to see if we are in the faith. He says the idea there is to keep on examining yourselves. Why? Because as we read in John here, John is saying we all have sin. We all have weaknesses that we need to own up to and confess. None of us will ever reach a point in this life that relieves us of this duty of examining ourselves and asking the question, Is it I, Lord? Only those who have grown complacent and lazy behave in such a way. From the youngest babe in Christ to the most mature veteran, none are exempt from the command to examine ourselves. And so we have to be diligent. Lest we come up short through our own neglect. We must actively pursue our relationship with Christ beyond baptism until our last breath. He will never forsake us. And He promises to even aid us in our fight to become better servants of His as we struggle against our weaknesses, as we struggle against the enemy. Again, it's not a pleasant experience. And, and we all struggle, including myself. But we need to have the humility and the honesty to say, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I have sinned. I need your help. I need you to show me where I'm weak and test me and try me. And help me do better. So let's heed these warnings that we see in the scripture time and time again. And never cease to ask, is it I, Lord? We're going to end it right there this morning. We're out of time. I thank you for tuning in. I hope that you'll join me next week in studying God's word. Feel free to visit our website at leonvalleychurch.org or email us a question or comment you may have at leonvalleychurch at gmail.com. Again, I've enjoyed studying with you as always. Look forward to doing so again next week, Lord willing. Until then, take care and, and God bless. Once again, I'm Jason Garcia, and this has been Faithful Sayings.